Amen. Welcome to our first Easter Sunday service. Can we give God praise? Come on. I'm so thankful to be here with you all. So good to gather this morning and to celebrate the victory that Jesus Christ had in the resurrection. The victory over death, sin, hell, and the grave. You're going to hear that phrase a little bit during the sermon. You know, victory over death, sin, hell, and the grave. It was you know, so beautiful to celebrate uh, what Jesus is doing in the lives of people in our city through these baptisms. We had five baptisms in the first service. We have like 16 next week. So I don't know how that service is going to go. I'm going to have like a 10-minute sermon, I guess. But it's going to be a good day. So you better be back next week. Come on. But I'm just so thankful for what God's doing in people's lives. Can we give God praise again? I do this a lot. Give God praise again for the baptisms. Come on. Yeah, so... You're going to clap a lot today in Jesus' name, all right? So if you're new with us, I want to say welcome to you. I know it can be a little nerve-wracking coming to a new church. You know, for me, I remember there was a season when Emily and I were checking out churches when we first got married, and I was always so nervous. So if you're feeling nervous right now, I just want to pray in Jesus' name you wouldn't feel nervous. And I pray that you'd feel welcome here and that you would encounter God. We really want these services to be powerful for you. You know, we pray all week. We work hard because we want you to meet with God every single week. We want uh, Jesus to be a part of your life, and, and we don't want to just do religion, we don't want to just go through the motions, but we want this to be a genuine encounter with God, and, and for you to feel welcome here as well, okay? So I pray that for you. But every single Easter, we come together uh, to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and as I reflected this week on the coming back to life of Jesus, I couldn't help but think about my own journey and my own spiritual journey and story of how I came back to life, spiritually speaking. So for me, my life up until I got to college was the life of being a Christian, but not really allowing God to have full leadership of my life. I, I grew up with parents who loved Jesus. They uh, were very involved in church. I was involved in church. I loved church. I, I played drums on my church's worship team from the time I was 10 until I graduated high school. And man, was I bad when I started. I'm thankful for a good drummer. John Griffin, thank you, and all the other drummers. But I was a bad drummer, but they let me play. And I loved church. But, but when I got to middle school, specifically in middle school, I started to really struggle with my faith. I, I struggled because I would read in the Bible about this resurrection life that was available. Uh, I'd read these commands not to sin or to turn from sin. But my life was like, just overcome by sin. I, I struggled, and I'm just really vulnerable. I'm super real. I, I try to be real from the pulpit, so if anything weirds you out, I'm sorry, but just how I am, okay? So I struggled a lot with sexual sin, addictions, uh, and then when I got to high school, I struggled with alcohol, partying, that whole thing, you know? And and it kind of caused me to, to lose traction in my faith. I, I, I felt like I, and I was, I was living this double life. I would, you know, come to church. There'd be a Christian Daniel who'd play drums and maybe shout a little bit during worship. I, I've done that my whole life. Uh, but, and then I would try to, you know, convince people that, you know, that Jesus was God and stuff during the week. I'd try to con- or convince my friends, you know, try to debate them. Be like, no, Jesus is real. I, I'd do all those things. But then I had all this sin in my life. I, I, had, I had all these struggles that I hid behind closed doors. I... There was a Christian Daniel, and then there was the Daniel who did whatever he wanted. I just could not get victory over sin, and my life was raging with it. I had a desire to be holy. I felt bad when I sinned. I remember on Sunday mornings when I'd give my pastor a hug, I'd be like, please don't smell the alcohol. Please don't smell the alcohol. I'm only 16 years old. Please don't smell this alcohol, right? And my life was raging with this sin, but, but I wanted to change, and I just couldn't seem to change. Has anyone ever felt that way? You don't have to raise your hand. That'd be awkward on Easter Sunday, but, but does anyone ever feel that way? Like, like, you feel like, okay, there's this Bible, there's this call to be holy, and yet my life is just so unholy. I just can't seem to get any victory in my life, 
And this lack of victory over sin made it impossible for me to gain traction in my relationship with Jesus. I was just at this stalemate. I'd come to services like this and I'd get fired up. I'd be like, I'm never going back to my old life. I have decided to follow Jesus. No turning back. Yeah, singing. And then I go home. Five hours later, I turned back already. <laughs> I felt so guilty. I felt so shameful. I think some of us have shame this morning. We feel like God's mad at us. We feel like God doesn't, or doesn't want anything to do with us. I, I feel this guilt and this shame, this weight over me. And this all came to a breaking point after my senior year of high school. On July 22nd of 2011, if you do the math, I'm, I'm 28, okay? So I'm a young pastor. So if you're older, I don't know what to tell you. I'm young. So anyways, <laughs> I, was a, I was at a party, and I, I took things further than I ever had before. You know, I kind of had some standards. You know, I think we all have a few standards. Like if I do that thing, then I'm bad. But as long as I don't do that, as long as I'm better than my friends, okay, I'm good, right? So I had these standards. Like I can't do these things. And I went to this party. I did all these things that I said I would never do. And man, I felt so shameful. Like, like before the shame would kind of be there and then it'd go away. Because, okay, my sins aren't terrible. I mean, they're bad, but they're not terrible. But I crossed every line I had ever set for myself. I'm like, God is definitely done with me now. Has anyone ever felt that way? Again, don't raise your hand, but has anyone felt that way? God is done with me now. And I went home that day and I wept before the Lord. I laid in my bedroom. I was just weeping before God. I was like, God, could you ever love me? I, I, I was asking the question, like, does this faith actually work? Because I've been in church my whole life and it doesn't seem to work for me. I struggle with sin. I feel like I don't want to do it, but then I'll go back to it right afterwards. I'm like, God, is this going to work? And I knew in that moment, I knew I either had to go all in with him and, and say, I'm in with Jesus, or I was done, essentially. But, but to go all in, I knew I needed to experience God. So I, I was just I sitting there. I was praying. I was like, God, could you forgive me? Could you ever love me? My mom comes in the room. I love mamas, right? Mom comes in the room. Mama Quimby comes in. And she's like, uh-uh, devil, not today. Not today, Satan. She comes in and she says, she was actually much more emotional, but she comes in very quiet. She wasn't kicking the door down or anything. I'd be like, get out of my room when she's doing that. But anyway, she comes in and uh, she prays something along these lines. She just prays a simple prayer. See, God is so near to us. We think he's so far away. He's so near. It's a simple prayer. She prayed, Jesus Show Daniel that there's nothing that he could ever do that could separate himself from your love. And I can't explain it, guys. In that moment, something happened. I felt this warmth. I, I, I felt God's love, perhaps really for the first time, like genuinely felt his love that had no conditions. It was like the resurrection life of Jesus came inside of me. It, it, it was insane. My heart was so hard before all of a sudden it started to melt before him. And I knew that if he, if he could love me on my very worst day, I said, I'm not going back. I can't go back to that old life. If he could love me on my very worst day, and God loves you on your very, or on your very worst day, if he could love me on my very worst day, then I had to go all in for this Jesus. If he really paid the price on the cross for my sins, and he didn't just pay the price, but then he comes up from the grave and makes resurrection life possible, I gotta go all in with Jesus. There's no half and half out. And my heart changed. I, I changed in that moment. I encountered God's love like I never had before. It felt as if God stoked into flame the embers of my heart. It felt like he resurrected me right then and there. Before I was dead, but now I was alive. Before I was condemned, but now I was forgiven. Before I was hopeless, and now I bursted with joy. I crossed over from religion. Can I get an amen? I, I crossed over from, from religion and just trying to behave a little bit better than my friends to a real love relationship with God to, to, or to true intimacy with him. I crossed over from making God one little piece of my life to making him my whole life. I crossed from shame to grace. I experienced grace that doesn't only forgive me from my sin but gives me power over my sin. I'm about to start preaching. Come on, somebody. I crossed over from just admiring God to really wanting God deep in my inner being. 
My encounter with God's love changed me forever. I realized that, yes, I was far more or sinful and flawed than I could ever imagine, but at the same time, I was more loved than I could ever dream. Come on. Ah. <laughs> Sorry for that grunt, but this, I'm so excited, guys. Second Corinthians 5.17 it says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. I experienced scripture really for real. It wasn't just something in my head anymore. It was in my heart. Every one of us, we come to this room at different places in our journey, or different places in our journey. Some of us, we have followed Jesus for quite some time. Maybe you followed Jesus for decades, and you're like, who is this 28-year-old punk? trying to tell me about Jesus. I've read the Bible 55 times, twice a year. <laughs> Some of you follow Jesus for a while. That's what I'm trying to say through that joke. Some, you just, or just recently began following Jesus. Maybe you're a Chi Alpha student. Those Chi Alpha students, they're like firecrackers. Holy cow. They get on fire for God. I'm like, you need to just calm down, okay? So maybe that's you. You're just like, ah, you want to grunt all the time as you're walking down the street. I don't know. But there's others you're a follower of Jesus. You may have been in the church your whole life, but there is zero or maybe just a tiny little bit of passion in your relationship with God. It is so lifeless. If you're honest, you don't have to tell us all right now, but, but if you're honest, as you look inwardly, you realize you don't have any passion in your relationship with Jesus. It is all religion. It's all just trying to overcome sin on your own. It's all trying to just figure it out. You're just trying to do religion. And there's still others who you've never accepted Jesus as your Lord and Savior. Maybe you're here today because someone kept bugging you to come to Easter service. Like, fine, I'll come, you weirdo. I will come. I got a door hanger, a mailer, and then you gave me an invite card. I guess I will go to the sent church, whatever the heck sent church means. And I said, I said heck in the first service. I said I shouldn't have said heck, and I said it again in the second service. Come on, I need deliverance today, Jesus. But no matter where you're at this morning, we all share some things in common, okay? We were all born sinful and separated from God. And we can't live the life that we're supposed to live on our own. And we have all come face to face with sin, death, and evil that this world brings, especially in this, in this last year as COVID has ravaged our world. Maybe you just got your shots and this is like your first time in public or with a group of people in a year, right? We have come face to face with death, sin, and evil over this last year. We have all seen that this world in itself is not enough to satisfy the deep longings of our heart. It's not enough to give us a deep, eternal security. Our only hope as human beings is that there will be someone outside of this world who knows more than we do, who's stronger than we are, who can set things right. We have realized this world is broken. We need a savior. We need someone who can bring our hearts back to life. We need someone who can give us victory over sin and death. We need someone who can restore this world and everything in it that's broken. We need Jesus. The scriptures tell us that Jesus is this person who can set everything right in the world and in your life. And with that said, we are continuing our sermon series, Beauty for Ashes. We started this on Friday night. As I prayed about this Easter series, I just felt that the Lord was leading me to Isaiah chapter 61, verse 1 through 3. You see, when Jesus begins his ministry in Luke chapter 4, he goes into a synagogue, he picks up a scroll, it happens to be Isaiah, and he reads from chapter 61. And he says, this prophecy about a Messiah is actually about me. Think about this. Jesus was a carpenter. He was from Nazareth, which was like a really crummy town. So think about a crummy town around here. I'm not going to name any names. They're all great towns, right? I'm sorry. I didn't mean to offend you. But think about a crummy town. He, he came from one of those towns, and he says, hey, this scripture from 700 years ago is about me. 
It was a pivotal moment. Let's read it quick. Let's read what Jesus said about himself. It says this. It says, The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to preach or proclaim good news to the poor. Mm. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives and release from darkness for the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn and provide for those who grieve in Zion, to bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, the oil of of joy instead of mourning, and a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. They will be called oaks of righteousness, a planting of the Lord for the display of his splendor. Okay, so Isaiah, he is prophesying that a Messiah or Savior would come who would preach good news to the poor, bind up the brokenhearted, proclaim freedom for captives, release prisoners from darkness, proclaim favor to God's people, give comfort to those who mourn, give beauty instead of ashes, joy instead of mourning, and praise instead of a spirit of despair, or other translations say praise instead of heaviness. Mm, I like that. We've been carrying some heaviness around this year, haven't we? Have you been carrying some heaviness around in 2020, now 2021? Jesus wants to come give you a garment of praise. That's the thing. Isaiah, he's saying that a Messiah, a Savior King will come and he will, be, or he will reverse the misfortunes of God's people. The consequences of death, sin, hell, and the grave will be overturned through God's, or God's Messiah who will crush the enemies of God. Jesus, he gets up boldly and says, I am this person. Mm. And he achieves the reversal of these things through, through living a perfect life through his substitutionary death on the cross where he paid for our sins, and then through going in a grave and rising back up out of it three days later. So what I want to do in this series is talk about the different reversals that Jesus achieves on our behalf. We talked on Friday night about how his death achieves the reversal of the penalty of sin, condemnation. It achieves a reversal where now we can be forgiven for our sins no matter what we've done. And now today, the sermon is called Imperishable Life, and I will talk about, or I want to talk about how in a world of death, hopelessness, and brokenness, Jesus makes restoration possible. He came to give us abundant life and eternal life, and he did it through experiencing death himself and then overcoming that death by rising from the grave. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Are you ready for God's word? I'm ready for God's word. I'm excited. I'm excited for Easter celebrations like lunch and Easter eggs after this, but right now it's God's word, right? 1 Corinthians was a letter written by the Apostle Paul who was a missionary and church planter. He, he opposed God's work at first. He, he had Christians killed during a period of his life. Right after Christianity kind of got going, he would get Christians killed. He would kill Christians. And then Jesus reveals himself to Paul, and Paul is absolutely transformed. He experiences the resurrection life of Jesus. And then Paul goes on to become, or to become the greatest church planter and missionary that the world has ever seen. And he is, is largely responsible for the church's expansion throughout the Middle East and into Europe. About 20 years after Jesus' ascension to heaven, Paul starts a church in Corinth. And Corinth was a crazy place. It was like Vegas, and any other place you could think of that, that might be a little crazy combined, okay? I should have had some other ideas, but all that popped in my head was Vegas. So there you go. That wasn't in my notes. But point is, it was a crazy place. So he left. He starts the church. He appoints a leader. And the leader was likely, you know, recently saved or, you know, a relatively new Christian. He, he appoints a leader. And he, he moves on and says, okay, you guys got this. Well, things start to get cray-cray, okay? So church ain't just cray-cray today. It was cray-cray in the beginning sometimes, too. So they started giving in to, to bad theology, bad ways of thinking about God. They started giving in some bad practices. If you read 1 Corinthians, they did some weird stuff, okay? I'm, I'm not going to get into it all today, okay? It'd be a little bit more like 
I don't know, rated R maybe. I don't know. We have to get into that later, but not today, okay? But point is, Paul's trying to get this stuff under control. He's like, you guys are crazy. I was with you for a year, and I leave, and now look at you. You're departing from the faith I, I gave you. And much of the letters in the New Testament were written for this reason. They were written about real-life situations that were going on in local churches, and Paul and the other apostles are trying to correct these things that are going on, or sometimes they encourage them. I think the, the book of Philippians is like the only one that's like, hey, you're doing a good job. But the rest of them is like, hey, you need to figure this out. They're written to guide the new church on, on how to really be the church that God calls them to be. And one of the things that Paul is trying to correct in 1 Corinthians, one of many, is the fact that they were starting to deny the resurrection. And more specifically, they were denying the resurrection that's going to come at the end. So there's Jesus' resurrection that happened 2,000 years ago. And then there's the promise of everyone who puts their faith in Christ. We will be raised up. Our bodies will be raised up to be with Christ forever. And those who don't profess faith in Christ will, will be sent to the other place, the one we're not as excited about, the one without God. It's called hell. Okay, so... That's what's going to happen at the end of the day, but on the last day. But Paul, or, but the church in Corinth was starting to, to kind of leave that teaching. They were saying, okay, resurrection at the end, that's too crazy. Because they lived in the Greco-Roman world, and they, in the Greco-Roman world, they believed that, that when you died, you either just perish, you're just done, or you kind of float around in the underworld. Like if you've seen the movie Hercules, some of the parents in here have seen the, or if you were born in the 90s like me, you've seen Hercules, right? And it's just like floating around in Hades. That's what they believed, but Paul's saying, no, on the last day, God will raise up our bodies and he will renew the heavens and the earth and we'll live in a place that's more real than anything we've ever experienced. And they were rejecting this teaching. So Paul says this in verse three through six. He says, for I delivered to you as a, as a first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas or Peter then to the 12, and then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Okay, so he, or Paul reminds them of that foundational teaching that he gave them at the beginning, that Jesus died for sins, that he, he was risen from the grave, that he appeared to real people. He appeared to 500 people at one time. They couldn't all hallucinate, right? 500 at one time saw his resurrected body after after they had just seen him put up on a cross and put in a tomb. Jesus appeared to 500 at one time. Paul's saying, that's what I delivered to you. Then in verse 12, he gets even more specific about the importance of the resurrection of Jesus and our future resurrection. As we celebrate Easter and the resurrection of Jesus today, I just want to spend some time in the rest of this passage to see what does the, resur the resurrection mean for us? Why is it important? So let's read verse 12 through 16 here. It says, Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead on the last day? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. And we are even bound to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has even been raised. Okay, let's pray quick over this passage before we jump in. So Jesus, I thank you for your word. Holy Spirit, I pray that your word would pierce every heart in this room today and comfort every heart in this room. God, I pray that you would call us out of our old life and into our new life. I, I pray that the resurrection of Jesus would compel us to step into a newness of life today. So Jesus, we thank you. We pray all this in your name. Amen. All right, so I like to give points because I'm a note taker. If you're a note taker, you can take notes. If you don't take notes, that's okay, but I'll be a little sad. Okay, so Take notes. I'm just kidding. You don't have to take notes. But the first point today is this. The resurrection of Jesus is the foundation 
of our faith, of the Christian faith. When Paul says that, that some are saying that there's no resurrection of the dead, again, he's referring to the belief that on, that on the last day, God will raise up every person and invite some to eternal life and some will face judgment. For those who profess faith in Christ, we won't just be you know, floating on a cloud. Okay, we won't just be in heaven you know, floating around playing a harp. If some of you don't want to go to heaven. You're like, that place sounds boring. No, on the last day, we will have, have real resurrected bodies in a new heaven and new earth. God will bring heaven down to earth. It'll become one. And we will live in God's renewed world. It will be more real than anything you've ever experienced. Paul says if this future resurrection does not happen, then Christ could not have been raised from the dead because that was the whole point of his resurrection. He said if Jesus... Or Jesus' resurrection, the whole point was so we could be raised up and be with God for eternity. The whole point was so death would not have the final word, but yet the Corinthians are starting to believe death had the final word. He's like, come on, what's the whole point of this thing? If we don't rise at the end, if the dead don't rise, then Christ surely didn't rise. And if Christ didn't rise, our preaching is in vain. Paul is saying the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the bedrock, it's the foundation of our faith. Over and over again in the New Testament, the apostles ground our faith in the resurrection. It's central to Christianity. If Jesus really was raised from the dead, then the claims of Jesus and the teachings of Christianity are true. If he didn't rise, then it's all farce. It's made up or it's fabricated. But if he did rise, then this is true. This belief isn't just some wishful thinking or made up idea though. It's not just, oh, we believe in this fairy tale that, that a, a guy died and then he rose. It was, it was cool. We celebrated once a year. No, we can have confidence in this resurrection even as an objective historian. So maybe you're really smart. You're a thinker. We got some smart people in our church, I hope. You're a thinker and you're like, did it actually happen though? Well, I'm glad you asked. I have a couple of things for you. Okay? I got a couple of ideas. So I got a couple of reasons why I think the resurrection actually happened. The first thing is if you compare uh, Julius Julius Caesar and Jesus Christ. Okay, so I think we all accept that, that Julius Caesar was a real person. He was the emperor of Rome. He's a real guy. In the earliest manuscripts we have of, of accounts of his life are from the 5th century, which were about 500 years after Caesar lived. In manuscripts, there are copies of the original writings. So the original writings were written pretty close to his life, but the, but the closest copy of one of those writings we have is from about 500 years after he lived. And yet it's almost universally accepted that these accounts are, are mostly true and that we can have some confidence in who Caesar was. We teach it in our history classes. Now the earliest manuscripts of the full Gospels, so there's actually earlier manuscripts of like parts of the Gospels that are from as close to like 90 years after Jesus lived. Like little shreds of the Gospel we can find from like 125 AD. But the earliest full manuscripts of entire gospels we have are from the 300s or from the fourth century that's only 300 years after jesus lived and died and rose again it's universally accepted that julius caesar existed and that we have accuracy about his relative accuracy about what happened during his life and yet the evidence is even more overwhelming that a guy from nazareth named jesus died and he rose again and yet the reason why we disbelieve it is because it's cray cray a guy died and then came up out of the dead, or, or, or came up from the dead? That is weird to our, our Western rationalistic ears. How could a dead man rise? N.T. Wright also makes a fascinating argument for the historical reliability of the resurrection of Jesus in his book, The Resurrection of the Son of God. It's like a lot of pages, and I haven't read the whole thing, but I've, I've seen this part, okay? <laughs> 
He looks at what we read earlier in the first few verses of 1 Corinthians 15 and points out the fact that Paul is boldly, this is like 50 to 53 AD that Paul is writing this. So it's about 17 years after Jesus died and rose again. Paul is boldly saying that Jesus died, he went in a tomb, he rose, the tomb was empty, and then he showed himself to eyewitnesses and even 500 at one time. So that couldn't be made up, right? It couldn't be a, a, or, or some big hallucination, he appeared to individuals, small groups, and, and big groups. This was a bold thing to claim, especially if it was made up and if it was that recent. Think about 2006. That was about 15 years ago. You think it'd be easy to make something up about 2006 and, and hundreds of people are believing it or saying it happened? This letter was written to a church, and it, and it, and it would have been read publicly, much in like, or kind of like a setting like this. And, and Paul was inviting anyone. He's saying, anyone who can debunk this resurrection, go ahead and try but they couldn't. Paul was inviting anyone who doubted the resurrection of Jesus to go talk to the eyewitnesses or go find Jesus' dead body in a tomb. He did this because he was confident. He had seen this Jesus for himself. If there had only been an empty tomb and no sightings of Jesus, well, that means they would have gotten crazy and all ninja-like and, and, and jumped into the tomb, took the body, stole it, but then if nobody saw it, then, okay, you know that or somebody stole it, right? They would have assumed that the body was just stolen and hidden somewhere. But see, here's the thing about that, though. The body was stolen. You got to think about the fact that there were centurion guards guarding the tomb because uh, the Roman authorities were nervous that they would try to steal the body to try to make it seem like he rose from the dead. Okay, so they're guarding it. You know, they would have, have to have gotten it and hid it somewhere. But here's the thing. There's not just an empty tomb. There's also eyewitnesses. If there had been eyewitnesses and no empty tomb, then or that no one would have concluded that it was a resurrection because people's accounts of seeing Jesus would have been debunked by going to the tomb and saying, hey, you say you saw him, but he, he's there. He, he's stinky, and he's, he's there. He's dead. From the very beginning, Christians proclaimed Jesus' resurrection with boldness. If he hadn't risen, they could have pointed to the tomb or asked the 500 eyewitnesses if what Paul was saying was true. The only way they could have pulled off a fake resurrection was if they stole the body, and convince hundreds of people to lie about seeing Jesus at one time, which seems like a stretch, especially considering the fact that, that many of these people would give their life for Jesus. Would you give, a, or give your life for someone who said, I'm going to die and rise again, and then he didn't actually rise again? Would you give your life for a lie? That's the question we have to consider. With all this taken together, Wright argues that from the point of view of an unbiased historian, the resurrection must have happened. The only plausible explanation for an empty tomb and 500 eyewitnesses is the resurrection of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Mm, that's good stuff. Paul is arguing here in 1 Corinthians 15 that if we lose this foundational teaching, then we lose everything. Our faith has nothing to stand on. But then in the following verses, he explains what the resurrection accomplishes for us here and now. And I think this is important because we need some hope, we need some joy, we need some life in this place and in our city and in our world. And the resurrection is the keys to that. So let's take a look at this. Verse 17, you're about to get excited. Someone's about to shout me down. I can just see it. Let's see, verse 17. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. The resurrection of Jesus proves that sin has been dealt with. That's the second point this morning on Easter Sunday. The resurrection of Jesus proves that sin has been dealt with. In verse 17, Paul says that if the resurrection did not happen, then our faith is futile and we are still in our sins. All those Christians who have died 
and have perished are people to be pitied. But the inverse of the statement is if Jesus has been raised, then you are no longer in your sins. If Jesus rose from the dead, then sin has been dealt with. His his resurrection crushed the power of sin in our lives. On Friday night, we talked about how Jesus' death, it, it pays for our sin. His blood covers our sins and makes it possible for us to, or to be washed white as snow no matter what we've ever done. And while the penalty of, for our sins is death, the free gift of God is eternal life. On the cross, Jesus paid it all. I could start singing again. Jesus paid it all. Come on. I'm not a good singer, but I just like to sing in front of people. So there you go. The resurrection showed that God accepted Jesus' payment. If he died and then he stayed in the grave, then Jesus would not have been dying for our sins as the son of God. He would have been dying for his own sins as just another man. But his his resurrection proves that his payment for sins was sufficient. It shows that Jesus is not just some other guy claiming to be God who would ultimately go in the grave and die, but he is the son of God who overcomes death, sin, hell, and the grave. Romans 1.4, Paul says this. He says, and was declared, he's talking about Jesus, to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. So he proves that he's the son of God. He's declared to be the son of God through his resurrection. When Jesus rose from the grave, he proved that he was God. And now if we trust in Jesus, we can be forgiven for our sins, but that's not it. We can also be invited into the resurrection life of Jesus here and now. We can have both the promise that we will be raised up on the last day to be with God forever, and we can walk in the newness of life right here, right now. Newness of life. Come on, I'm going to get excited. I'm about to jump off this platform, somebody. Romans 6, 4 says, Just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in the newness of life. The resurrection means we can be set free from both sin's penalty and sin's power, and we can walk in a new life. Okay, so one of the struggles Emily and I have as parents is getting our two-year-old Jane to eat dinner. Every single night, we struggle to get her to sit at the table and eat. Most of the time, she just wants us to give her a bowl with a cookie in it, because she likes to have the bowl, so that she can take it with her, have a nice little treat, and play with her toys. She really needs to maximize playtime and mealtime together, you know, get a cookie and get to play while she's doing it. (laughs) Emily and I have been very intentional about, over the last couple weeks, about uh, not giving her treats before dinner. We tell her, if you want to eat a cookie later, you got to eat your dinner now. It was weird. One night, she started like scarfing it down, like, yeah, I'm going to eat it, because she wants to get that cookie. I'm like, come on, this works. Parenting works. Intentionality works. I don't know if it would actually work, but amen. Every time, right after she pays the price, right after she eats that healthy meal, she's like, okay, time for a cookie, and a little chocolate milk, too. Throw that in there. I ate a good meal. If I don't give her a cookie, it shows that her eating of dinner has not been sufficient and that she still has some more green beans to eat. But when I give her the cookie, it's my way of saying, well done, you've eaten your dinner, good and faithful servant, right? (laughs) In the same way, the resurrection of Jesus proves that his sacrifice was sufficient and he truly paid the price for our sin. It shows we can have power over sin in the future, it shows us that sin does not reign, but Jesus does. It shows us, or shows us we don't have to give in to our old sinful desires, but a new life is possible. His sacrifice was sufficient. He doesn't just forgive us for our past, though. He gives us hope for a future where sin doesn't dominate our lives. Okay, the resurrection, it doesn't only prove that, that sin has been dealt with, it also shows that death has been dealt with, and we need to hear that this year. Death has been dealt with through the resurrection of Jesus. Verse 20. 
But in fact, if Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep, for as by a man came death, by a man has also come uh, the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive, but each in his own order, Christ the first fruits, and then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. The third point, the resurrection of Jesus takes the sting out of death. You guys better start shouting. Come on, this is good stuff. He takes the sting out of death. Paul shows the connection between Jesus' raising from the dead, his rising from the dead, and our future resurrection. He says that, that Christ's resurrection is the first fruits of our future resurrection. It's a sign that at the end we are all going to be raised up. He says that just as we took on sin's penalty through one man named Adam's sin in the garden so many years ago, we can now have the promise of resurrection through Jesus who overcame death. If all died in Adam, we can now all be made alive through Jesus. But for that to happen, Jesus must have risen first. This shows us that Jesus takes the sting out of death. And now when we die or when family members die, we know that it doesn't have to be the end of the story. If we confess that Jesus is Lord and believe in our hearts that God raised him from the dead, we will be saved. And we will be with Christ on the last day. 1 Corinthians 15, 51 through 56. This is further down in our passage. It says, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep or die, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall all be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, at the end, Christ will raise us all up. We will take on an imperishable and incorruptible life if we put our faith in Jesus. Whereas our bodies now, they, they face sin and decay and death. We will be immortal if we put our faith in Jesus Christ. Death will be swallowed up in victory. Its sting will be removed. Victory over death is possible through Jesus Christ. Paul goes on, one more, one more. I'm sorry, I'm getting crazy today, one more. He goes on to explain one more consequence or benefit of the resurrection. And this passage was really fun to read in first service. Bear with me. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in, subject, in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it's plain that he's ex accepted who put all things in subjected, or, or subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, how many times do you guys say subjected? And then the son himself will also be subjected to him who puts all things. You gotta say it two more times, Paul, really? Who put all things in subjection under him that God may be all in all. Okay, so point is, in, in regular English, Apostle Paul, a smart one, is this. The resurrection of Jesus dethrones God's enemies. You could have just said that, bro. Because of, the re because of the victory of Jesus in the resurrection, we can have confidence that God will destroy every rule, authority, and power that is set against him. He will put every enemy under his feet. And you're thinking, yeah, that neighbor that, that mows my, or doesn't mow their lawn. No, not that. <laughs> the only explicit enemy, sorry, that was weird, but Paul tells us about is death, okay? But it's safe to assume that he's referring to every demonic and evil 
enemy who sets themselves against God's purposes and tries to break down God's created order. Because of Jesus' resurrection, we can have confidence that God will push back every single dark force in the world and he will set everything right. Every injustice that's been done, that's been done to you, will be dealt with and set right. Every evil will be silenced. Every great superhero movie, you're like, where's he going with this? Ends with the superhero putting things back to rights after some nefarious enemy who we're all deceived to think is actually going to win this time tries to destroy the world. And this usually happens after, after the enemy has had their big moment. They're like, yeah, I'm going to win. And then the hero has some great comeback. I think if Dark Knight Rises, like Christian Bale's in a cave or something. He doesn't have a shirt on. And he just like starts getting jacked, like bigger and bigger, starts climbing himself out, comes back or goes back into Gotham City and takes back Gotham City. You're like, this guy is such a weirdo. Okay. <laughs> But the point is that or the defeat of the hero actually leads to the hero's victory. It makes them stronger. They come back and they set things right. And then the end comes and it all feels good. But then after the credits, there's some little scene where it's like something else is going to happen, right? If you're, if you're watching Marvel movies, at least. At, at the end, it's like, hey, there's another enemy that's out there somewhere. But the beautiful thing about Jesus is when he set it right, he set it right. And when he comes back on the last day, he's going to set everything right. And there's going to be no like nefarious enemy coming back up. Like, hey, no, all dealt with. He deals with every single rule, authority, Every power that's opposed to him, he will deal with it on the last day. He's begun to deal with it now through his resurrection. He has made eternal life possible, but at the very end, he will come back. He will raise our bodies up, and he will set everything to rights. And those who don't know Jesus, those who don't put their faith in Christ, will not get to be with him for eternity. That's the sad reality. But also with that, he will send every evil force. He will make them depart from his created order. And this will be a perfect place. Heaven will come down, and we will live in a world that is the world we were truly made for. A world that doesn't get shut down because of a virus, right? Come on, somebody. I want to live somewhere like that. This last year's been kind of crazy, right? This is what the resurrection of Jesus points to. This is what we're celebrating today. The enemies of God will not have the final word. Jesus will be victorious. So with that said, the main idea this morning is this. Jesus, actually it's this afternoon, that's weird. Jesus, I'm preaching too long. Jesus can give us imperishable life in a world of sin and death. That's good news. When Jesus showed up in Luke chapter four and he read that scroll, he was saying, I'm setting everything back to rights. Beauty for ashes, joy for mourning, praise for heaviness. Jesus can give us imperishable life in a world of sin and death. For the last year, we have come face to face with sin and death. I remember last Easter, it was raining outside and I watched TV, well, I watched church, but it was TV. And I remember, it's, well, actually, let me share a story with you quick. It's crazy. I get a text from my realtor who's here today. I won't call her out. But I get a text like, hey, you know, this building you're trying to get, it's not going to happen. You know, they're wanting too much. I remember sitting there thinking, okay, I don't know what I'm going to do. I, I, I gave up in that moment, honestly. I was like, okay, this is done. We're not getting this building. But here we are a year later. We're sitting in this building, right? And that's not what the resurrection is necessarily about. But what I'm saying is that with Jesus, it's not over till it's over, right? It's not over till it's over. Jesus is the God of the comeback. Come on. He's the God of the comeback. That's what he does. That's what he's about. He's about setting everything right. He's about when you're at your darkest, most hopeless day where he comes out of nowhere and he changes your heart. He changes your life. He begins to restore things. For the last year, we have come face to face with sin and death. We have seen vividly that despite the beauty of this world, 
Things can change in a moment. Viruses can come out of nowhere and kill millions of people. People can turn against each other like that. Death, sin, and hell are always knocking at the door. I don't know what brought you to church this Easter, but I think part of it was you just want a little bit of hope today. And I believe that God wants to give that to you. While this world was deeply broken and we were sinners opposed to God and headed to hell, Jesus Christ, God himself, came out of heaven to save us. He said, uh-uh, I'm gonna try one more time. I'm gonna come and try to save them. I'm gonna give them a sacrifice on their behalf and all they gotta do is accept it to be saved. That's all you gotta do. You put your faith in Jesus. You say, I'm gonna trust in what you did for me. Christianity is crazy. It's not like you climb up to God, you gotta figure it all out and then once you're holy enough, you get to be with God. No, Jesus says, I'm gonna come down to you. I'm gonna live the perfect life and then I'm gonna pay your penalty for not being able to do it. And not only that, I'm going to then defeat the greatest enemy, which is death, through coming back up out of the grave peace with God and eternal life is available to us this morning. All it takes, again, is to put your faith in Jesus. If you trust in Jesus, you will be made right with God. So maybe this morning you're not a Christian or you once were and you walked away. The church is messy. Maybe the church you know, really turned you off to God. Maybe someone hurt you in the church. I don't know what happened, but, but for some reason you walked away from your faith. And this morning, maybe you want to step into a relationship with Jesus for the first time or you want to recommit your life to him, you want to come back home. And the way we do that here at church, it's very simple. We just have people raise a hand to heaven and say, hey, that's me. And nobody's going to be looking around. Nobody's going to be staring at you like, all right, who's raising their hand? All we're doing is say, hey, Jesus, that's me. I want to put my faith in you. I want to be your son or daughter. I want to receive forgiveness today on this Easter. So if you bow your heads and close your eyes, I want to give you a chance to do that. And again, this is an intimate moment between you and the Lord. If that's you, if you want to come into relationship with Jesus for the first time or recommit your life to him, I'm going to count to three. And when I do, I just want you to slip your hand. Just slip up a little bit and just say, hey, God, that's me. I want to be in relationship with you. I want to come back home. So one, two, three. Slip up all across this room. See that hand? See that hand? See that hand? See that hand? Is there anybody else here this morning? See that hand? Can you set your hands down? Now, I just want to know who I'm praying for. Thanks for raising your hands and being bold. I'm just going to pray for you. And just pray a simple prayer in your heart as I pray out loud. All right, Jesus, we love you so much. And God, we thank you for Easter Sunday. We thank you that death does not have the final word. And God, I pray this morning that for those uh, several people who, who raised their hand, I just pray, God, that something supernatural would happen right now. God, that dead hearts would come to life, that old things would be gone, new things would come. God, I pray that you would see our sincere confession today, our confession to say we're not gonna continue living that old life. We're gonna turn from our sin. We're gonna receive forgiveness and walk into the newness of life. So Jesus, we thank you that you made it possible. In Jesus' name, amen. If you'd stand all across this room, I wanna worship one more time before we go and, and get on with our day. I just wanna summarize, guys. Paul, in this passage, he's telling us that sin, death, hell, and the grave does not have the final word. You need to get that. Sin has been dealt with Death has been overcome. The Lamb of God, the Lion of Judah has defeated the enemies of God. Those are our names for Jesus. He has defeated the enemies of God. When there was no breath left in his lungs, the Holy Spirit brought his body back to life. And on the last day, God will bring our bodies back to life and restore everything that's broken. Today is a day of celebration. We need to step into this life and this joy that God has for us. So I want you to do something for me right now. 
I want you to put your hands out in front of you like this. And if you're not comfortable, you don't have to, but like this. Okay, so palms down. Just put it out front of you. And, and, and right now, there's a lot of burdens we carry. There's, there's a lot of ashes we carry on our, our heaviness. And, and right now, I just want to pray that God would help us to, or to set those things down. And then we're going to pray that he'd help us to receive his joy. So first, let's pray that he'd help us to set these burdens down. So this morning, Jesus, we just pray that you'd help us to set all the burdens down in this world. There's so many burdens to be carried in this world right now. And Jesus, we pray that you'd help us to put it all down at your feet, to leave it there, and to walk forward into the new life you have for us. Now turn your hands around. All right, let's pray that God will give us beauty for ashes. So Jesus, we pray for beauty for ashes. Lord, come on. God, we pray for joy instead of mourning. And God, we pray for a spirit of praise instead of heaviness. Holy Spirit, do what only you can do. Do what only you can do, God. Move in our hearts. God, bring us back to life. Give us hope. Give us joy. We love you, Jesus. You are worthy of all the praise. God, help us to give you everything we got in this last song. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, let's worship him one more time.